Welcome to FO Podcasts. With me is Richard Fontaine. He is the CEO of CNAS, uh, which is the Center for New American Security. He's a dapper chap, um, has written for us in the past. He'll write for us again. Um, if not, uh, we will bully him to do so. And now we are going to get cracking on the discussion about um, national security, US national security. And what better time than um, now, because President Joe Biden is in Israel right now. Gaza is up in flames after a historic terrorist attack. Uh, and Richard, um, how does all of this affect the US? Well, thanks for having me. I haven't been called a dapper chap ever in my life. So oh, there's a start. There's a first time for everything. Yeah. So that's uh, if you live long enough, anything is possible. Um, well, clearly, the news of the day um, is this major uh, military operation that is underway in Gaza after this horrifying uh, terrorist attack that Hamas uh, launched in Israel. The I think death toll as of this recording is somewhere north of 1,400 Israeli citizens, uh, others injured, and obviously uh, a nation uh, really shaken and, and disturbed by what happened, and for very good reason. I mean, real echoes of 9-11. Uh, uh, 200 kidnapped as well, nearly 200. They said 199. Exactly. So, so, yeah, that, so that is the other terrible thing. Including Americans. The President Biden is there now. He is quite vocal in his support for Israel and some of the steps that Israel is taking to defend himself and to go after Hamas. That is likely to uh, bring about some opprobrium from um, the Arab world. We already saw today he was supposed to meet with the, uh, the King of Jordan, the President of Egypt, and Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, they canceled after uh, a report that a hospital in Gaza was blown up. Uh, their initial reporting suggested it was an Israeli rocket. It sounds now um, like it wasn't, but they canceled on him nevertheless. And this is before even the ground operation has begun. And so the United States has been trying to broker a Saudi-Israeli normalization agreement and some other things in the Middle East. And this is going to make all of that more complicated. So Israel is fundamental to U.S. security in the Middle East, and uh, Israel being at war with Hamas jeopardizes not just uh, Israel, but the region as a whole. Potentially. Uh, I mean, hopefully not. Mm -hmm. But right now there's a U.S. aircraft carrier task force that is right off the coast. Um, there's another one steaming its way over. There's a Marine Expeditionary Unit off the coast. And so mili US military power is surging to this region. The major reason it's surging to this region is to keep Hezbollah out of the fight, to deter Hezbollah from entering the fight. Because short-term nightmare is that while Israel's tied up in operations against Hamas in the south, Hezbollah, which has got much more military capability than Hamas does, in the north on the Lebanese border decides now's the time to get into the fight. And then you've got a two-front war. And I think with 
the administration is trying to do is surge military power there and say, well, don't do it because you could quite uh, easily have a fight, not only with the Israelis, but with the Americans on your hands. And you don't want that, so stay out of it. Um, and yet, you know, the, the region is on edge because of this. And so, you know, to keep this contained is one of the top goals, I think, of the administration right now. Yeah. On that note, to keep it contained being the top goals of the administration, uh, the worrying fact, and, and by the way, Ambassador Gary Grapple, who retired as the head of the office of the Peace Quartet in Jerusalem, was there uh, with us. Um, he has a full video, and we talked about this with him, but I'd love to get your view. The entire um, uh, Arab street from Morocco to Jordan has erupted. Uh, you see videos from Al-Aqsa, you see videos from the streets, you see videos um, from all over the Muslim world, actually, uh, wherein people are uh, talking about the Palestinian cause. Could this lead to an Arab uprising too? I doubt it. Um, I mean, if you look at the Arab Spring, uh, it was not vocal and organized around support for the Palestinians, but rather deep rooted grievances at the governance or lack thereof in uh, the countries starting in Tunisia and sort of spreading outwards. Inflation and, actually triggered it. Uh, yeah, so the, but the, and, you know, the standard of living, the economic, that's what I mean, the, the economic, especially the economic uh, situation and the sort of sclerotic nature, particularly of the so-called Arab republics. But that hasn't changed yet. So this could be a trigger that could you know, cause conflagration? Or do you think the ability of the governments to navigate popular unrest is better now? No, I think the fact that it's focused on the Palestinians rather than the governments that are running these countries makes the governments feel more secure rather than less secure. I mean, the Palestinian mm -hmm. cause has often been invoked as a way uh, in Arab countries to focus resentment or anger away from the fact that Many of these countries are very poorly governed with not great economic prospects, little political freedom and so forth. I see. So on the whole, you expect uh, that U.S. national interests won't be greatly affected and the situation will be under control. No, I would not say I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I mean, this is it's the Middle East. Uh, and so one of the cardinal rules of the Middle East is no matter how bad things look, they can always get worse. And Jake Sullivan forgot that. <laughs> well, you know, he made an unfortunately timed comment. Yeah. I mean, I think he was talking about sort of the broader picture in terms of normalization and all that. But yes, I mean, you can never count on things to be calm in the Middle East, even if they are, they might be boiling under the surface and waiting for some sort of spark. Um, so no, you can't be categorical about these things. But I think that the effort now is focused on, again, trying to keep this conflict contained. And um, as I look around the region, there's not a lot of countries that seem like they would want to get into a fight. I mean, you know, if you no, went back not, enough decades. It's then, not 1973. It's so not, that's the point. Yeah, it's not right? the Yom Kippur right. War. Right, so the, the government of Jordan doesn't want to attack Israel. The government of Egypt doesn't want to. No Arab government wants to attack not even Israel, Syria. with the possible exception of the Lebanese with Hezbollah. And the Iranians don't appear to want to attack uh, 
Israel directly. They're happy to fight Israel to the last Arab, but not necessarily to the last Iranian. And so what they seem eager to do is to whip up proxies in of which they've got a number um, to pressure or attack Israel rather than do it themselves. So, I mean, it's a it's a cynical kind of way of proceeding, but it may end up um, at least taking the prospect of interstate war off the table. Well, you've talked about interstate war, and there is an interstate war on between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. Does uh, the conflagration in the Middle East give Vladimir Putin an advantage? It cuts a couple different ways. I mean, in one way, sure, I'm sure Putin uh, is glad that there's something that is occupying uh, the focus of the United States and Europe other than Ukraine right now. Um, there's some limited amount of military resources that will end up going uh, to Israel, maybe that could have been used elsewhere. Um, but I don't know how much solace that's going to be. And I'll give you a counterexample. So the administration really wanted an additional aid package for Ukraine. It was unclear whether they were going to be able to get that to the House of Representatives to count on the House of Representatives right now to do anything as a stretch. We don't even have Speaker of the House. Nevertheless, the fact that Israel aid, which is widely supported in both the House and the Senate, is very likely to move, packaging the Ukraine aid with the Israel aid is going to make it likelier that Ukraine gets military aid than before the war in Israel, which is good for Ukraine and bad for Putin. So, you know, I, I think the real area where Russia and China as well would like to sort of make some metaphorical money is in what you know, people started calling the global south again uh, and, you know, showing the United States as being, you know, knee jerk supporters of Israel no matter what. And and, you know, indifferent toward the status of the Palestinians and all of that and try to use that to undermine support for the United States and its positions. But I don't know that any of that's going to change the situation on the ground in Ukraine. So what is your read of the situation on the ground in Ukraine? Because there are two countervailing um, points of view. One point of view is that uh, Ukraine is eventually going to wear Russia out. The other point of view is that Ukrainian economy cratered by 30% last year. It is barely growing. Russian economy has fared much better. Russia has more men, more material. And in this battle of attrition, Russia has the better hand. Yeah, I think a, 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 a very long war probably favors Russia for the reasons that you described, because Ukraine, in order to keep up a war of attrition, has to rely on the generosity of donor countries, the primarily Europe and the United States, and the appetite to provide assistance is not as high today as it was at the beginning of this war, and presumably it will decline further over time, and Ukraine's manpower and so forth are limited in ways that Russia's is not. Um, and Russia doesn't have those kind of constraints. It has, of course, other constraints. Um, namely the fact that most of the folks uh, who are fighting in the field don't really seem like they want to be there and uh, they have not been terribly effective. What this is sort of netted out to for the past, really most of this year is not quite a stalemate, um, but something relatively close to a stalemate. I mean, the, Ukraine, the, the Russians earlier this year tried a, an offensive to push the Ukrainians back 
from their positions in the east. That didn't get very far. The Ukrainians tried a counteroffensive, uh, which made some progress, limited progress in certain areas, but really tough with minefields and entrenched positions and all of this. Um, and so you've got both sides continuing to fight quite vigorously, um, but not a lot of movement in terms of territory seized or, or, or given up, um, and certainly no movement toward, you know, an end game uh, at the diplomatic table or anything else. Do you think there will be diplomatic efforts in the months uh, ahead, particularly after the winter? No, probably not. I think we still got a lot of fighting to go. So, uh, you know, I, if we're uh, doing this podcast again a year from now, my guess is that they, there'll still be a war between Ukraine and Russia. So then by your own analysis, as the war goes on, Russia will increasingly have the upper hand. Generally speaking, yes, because of its resource base and things like that. But there's a bunch of unknowns. I mean, some of the new capabilities the United States has provided attackums to Ukraine, um, the HIMARS that that uh, the United States provided to Ukraine, you know, I don't know, a year or so ago actually turned out to make quite a big difference. Who knows whether some new capabilities will make a difference for the Ukrainians. Um, and, you know, there's just a bunch of unknowns. So my, you know, my guess is that there's fighting going on a year from now, but there could be a collapse of the Russian line somewhere. There could be, you know, God forbid, a collapse uh, in, on the Ukrainian side at some point. Um, there's just a bunch of unknowns. Uh, the one sort of solid bet thus far has been, you know, bet on a long war with no meaningful diplomatic energies expended to try to end it because there's really no trade space between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, and therefore, you have a lot more fighting with continued support on Ukraine side from the United States and Europe and Russian uh, support from Iran and North Korea and indirectly from China, I guess. Um, yeah. So. Just a quick uh, question for you. Are you concerned about the growing friction between Ukraine and its neighbors, such as Poland and Hungary? Um, I'm not too concerned. I mean, Poland just had elections, so you're going to have a different government there anyway. That's um, true. But so the Hungarian president just met Vladimir Putin. That's right. So I was going to say, I think we should distinguish between Poland and Hungary. Yeah. I think you should distinguish between Poland and Hungary even before these recent elections. I mean, it's, it, I, one, uh, you know, was under the Soviet thumb and uh, suffered enormously and before that, under the Russian thumb, the other was under the Soviet thumb and, of course, suffered in 1956 tremendously when the Soviets crushed the uprising uh, in Budapest. But it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So very different memories in both countries. All kinds of differences, including a different sort of character to the most recent governments in both of these places. Now, Poland's government will change over after these new elections to one that's more, you know, pro-Europe and, and all of that. So I, I think any kind of tension with Ukraine is likely to subside there. Hungary is kind of the obvious outlier. And, you know, the meeting between the Hungarian leader and the Russian leader, I believe, marks the first time um, that there's been, uh, you know, a NATO uh, leader meet with Putin since the war broke out. Unless, that's correct. And so... Um, and, and it wasn't sort of a Macron fly in and try to, you know, end the war sort of gambit. It seemed more like a, 
you know, come in from the cold sort of thing or or some sort of a solidarity kind of move. So, yes, does that, that worry you? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think, you know, we would I think it would be much better if Hungary were a constructive, a fully constructive member of NATO and of Europe and of the transatlantic relationship uh, and not, you know, sort of throw bones to to Vladimir Putin. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I don't know how consequential that's going to be. I mean, that's not going to save Putin in Ukraine for sure. I see. Uh, there's another problematic member of NATO, Turkey. Yeah. Uh, what do you think um, Turkey's role is going to be? Turkey's role is always complicated. I just it, um, a couple of weeks ago saw President Erdogan in New York during the UN General Assembly. And um, you met uh, the Sultan? <laughs> well, there were a few of us who met him, but, um, but did you get invited to Istanbul to his thousand-room palace, I, Aksaray? I, no, I, that, that is, I'm still waiting for that invitation. Um, <laughs> but you know, Turkey has had a complicated um, approach basically since the war in Ukraine broke out. I guess I would describe it as multi-aligned. I mean, it's certainly in a way formally aligned with the West and and with NATO. I mean, it remains an alliance member and, and all of that. Um, and yet, you know, has occupied uh, this space um, that because of its ties to Russia that has allowed it to do things like negotiate the original Black Grain Initiative or mediate the, the original uh, Black Sea Grain Initiative, uh, you know, invoking the Montreux Convention so that uh, warships couldn't pass through the the Bosphorus on the way to the Black Sea and things like that. Um, and so it's this kind of a middle position, I think, that that the the Turks have sort of scoped out where, you know, they're sort of disproportionately important on some of these issues um, compared to another NATO member or something like that. And I, I think that's probably likely to be the role that they pursue. Well, there is uh, another tiny little matter over which Turkey has collaborated with Russia, and that is in Azerbaijan, in Nagorno-Karabakh, all the Armenians have been kicked out. Mm -hmm. It is a form of ethnic cleansing. Yep. And that happened with Russia's blessings. And that obviously happened with uh, Turkey's involvement. In fact, Erdogan was present in the Azerbaijani capital um, to announce victory. Yep. And that may not be the end of the that may not be the end of the game because I mean the Azeris look like they're poised to potentially invade Nakhchivan. Armenia and try to take the the southern portion of yeah. that country so as to build a, yeah. a essentially a land bridge uh, across what is southern Armenia. Uh, uh, to, no, there is to be fair an Azeri enclave within Armenia called Nakhchivan, just as there was an Armenian enclave in Azerbaijan. Correct, but that enclave and, is not connected to exactly, Azerbaijan. Yes. Go, you would have to go through what is exactly. Armenian territory. Exactly, and, and that's what they are planning that, to do. Right. So, 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 but that's taking someone's territory, right? I mean, yeah. you know that that is uh, Armenian territory. So you have this potential seizure of territory by force on top of the ethnic cleansing that's happened in Nagorno-Karabakh, and it's a pretty bad situation. It, it does show a bit of the, um, the I guess, I don't know, realignment's probably too strong, but, you know, I think Armenians thought for quite a while that Russia wouldn't let something like this happen, and it did, it, and it didn't do anything about it, or it couldn't do anything about it, and the Armenians were 
on their own. Yeah. But the Armenians bet on the U.S. They, they had this fond hope when I spoke to them that the U.S. would ride to its rescue. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by ride to their rescue. But if they meant, you know, troops on the ground fighting off enemy invaders, uh, then we haven't done that for Ukraine or other non-allied governments. So, um, you know, unless and until these countries are members of NATO uh, or allied with us in some other way, um, I am afraid that that's just a, a hope rather than a real realistic expectation. I mean, the other thing on the Turkey side that we should uh, mention is blocking the Swedish succession in NATO, which oh, continues yes. to be a source of great frustration. Yeah. I mean, the Swedes should be in NATO yesterday and would bring... At least they let the Finns in. They let the Finns in. Um, and this is turning on what the Turks believe is you know, insufficient crackdowns of Sweden uh, against Kurdish activists. Um, the Swedes tend to refer to this as freedom of speech and other things, uh, and freedom of assembly. Um, but I, I really do hope that the Turks will see the bigger picture here and uh, relax their blocking of Sweden because Sweden would be a, a great ally to have um, in the alliance. But Erdogan looks for a quid pro quo, yeah, as, as, as a Swedish friend said off the record, a military man. Uh, Erdogan haggles like a carpet trader in a bazaar. Well, he wants to get something, yeah. you know, and, um, and, and I think the Swedes have tried to accommodate the concerns of the Turks, but, you know, they have constitutional and other restrictions from going, mm -hmm. you know, too much further. And I hope that uh, the Turkish leadership at some point can say, okay, well, we've got what we've got. And ultimately, this is a net increase in capability and power and, uh, and so forth for the alliance. And therefore, you know, let's let this happen. Will the U.S. have to bribe uh, Turkey with F-16s and other goodies? Well, I don't know. I don't think bribing <laughs> Turkey is the way to put it with the F-16s. I mean, the, the Turks wanted F-35s, and, yeah. and they decided to buy S-400 uh, missile Missiles, defense yeah. from, or air defenses, rather, from Russia. And the U.S. said, no dice. You're not, you, you can pick one or the other, but not both. And, and so now F-16s has been the fallback. I think F-16s is probably uh, possible, but certainly, you know, going along with that kind of thing is, you know, the desire, the clear desire among the Americans to, you know, see the Turks lift their, their blocking of Swedish accession. I see. So some, we should expect some quid pro quo then. Well, maybe on the American side. I mean, you know, certainly if we're going to um, engage in, you know, this kind of give and take. Uh, so we so much so for the NATO and Turkey and Russia. Let's discuss what um, Glenn Carl, my co-author, calls the most consequential challenge to the U.S. ever, which is the rise of China and the rise of an aggressive China under Emperor Xi Jinping. Now, uh, my listeners uh, will not forgive me for this. I, I, I was sitting with Richard Gare and I left Richard Gare midway to uh, come uh, and uh, fulfill my appointment uh, with Richard Fontaine. So clearly you can see who's the biggest star in Washington, D.C. So many Richards. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I've read on your website that the rise of China is uh, a major concern now the U.S. has two nuclear-armed adversaries. It's never had that um, before, and China is an economic power too. 
So what is your read on increasing tension over Taiwan and over the South China Sea? They're both, uh, well, certainly, I think U.S.-China relations in general are going to continue to be tense indefinitely. Um, That can be fine to some degree, uh, depending on what issues you're talking about. I mean, we just have fundamentally different approaches to some key things. I mean, China wants to be the dominant military power in Asia, not the United States. The United States wants to be the dominant military power in Asia, not China. China wants to see a world safe for its brand of autocracy. The United States prefers to see the world safe for democracy. China wants to militarize the South China Sea and claim it for its own. The United States doesn't want China to do that. And you can go on and on. Oh, the U.S. Uh, is doing freedom of navigation operations for a while now to keep the sea lanes open there. Right, and which is something China doesn't want, right? So you can, you can, go, you can go on and on. And, and those are fundamental differences. The Taiwan issue is, is special because that you know, is the one issue that I think could uh, lead to conflict. I think it's extremely unlikely that the United States and China are going to come to military blows over the South China Sea or the Uyghurs or pick whatever other issue that divides us. Taiwan, they could. And how do we know that? Well, because Xi Jinping has told his military to be ready for the forcible seizure of Taiwan by 2027. Doesn't mean he will, but he said be ready to be able to do it. And President Joe Biden four times publicly has said that if Taiwan is attacked, the United States will come to its defense. Well, you know, maybe there's some wiggle room, but, but you know, that's pretty categorical. So The wiggle room is decreasing, though. Right. So I think, I, I think the Chinese believe the United States would defend Taiwan. I think, uh, I mean, I can't speak, obviously, for the president of the United States or the, for this president of the United States or anything. But I think he's made pretty clear kind of how he sees things. Um, no, but you're an analyst, so you have a good read on the situation, in particular about uh, American policy. Right, and and I so I think the 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 willingness to defend Taiwan, for example, which is not allied to the United States, is significantly greater than the willingness to defend Ukraine, which some people have called for a def- active defense of Ukraine, but clearly the president is not going to go there, and and I mean they will aid the Ukrainians to a very large extent, but not put you know, planes in the air and boots on the ground to fight the Russians. So question, why uh, Taiwan is more important than Ukraine? Is it because it makes semiconductors? Is it because of economics? Is it because uh, it is important to contain China? I think there's multiple reasons. I mean, certainly uh, more recently, you hear more and more about the Taiwanese semiconductors and their critical role in the U.S. economy. And should that capability fall into the hands of the PRC, then that could be, you know, extraordinarily disruptive uh, for our own economy. Um, so there's that. There's the military advantage that would that would uh, China would accrue by having, uh, you know, Taiwan was many decades ago referred to as America's unsinkable aircraft carrier. Well, if you turned it into China's unsinkable aircraft carrier. That would allow Chinese power projection to a much greater extent than it currently has. Countries around the region, including those countries allied with the United States, would have to react accordingly. Such as Japan and South Korea, yeah, exactly. Philipp- and, the Philippines. The U.S. Uh, the U.S. military freedom of, of operation would be constrained uh, and, and so forth. It would back the United States to some degree out of the Western Pacific. 
Uh, so you have the military advantage. And then I think you have the longstanding ties between the United States and Taiwan, which stretch back, you know, all the way to Chiang Kai-shek's evacuation of Taiwan in 1949 and, and the admiration for, uh, you know, a Chinese democracy now in, in Taiwan. Uh, and you can go back and look through American history, whether it's in, embedded in the Taiwan Relations Act or uh, in, you know, statements of, of sentiments from presidents and members of Congress and everything else. But uh, I think there's a real desire to avoid seeing, you know, uh, a, a democracy uh, that is built a very successful uh, de facto kind of country for itself swallowed up by force because the big country uh, on its near it would des decides it would like to have it. Now, I understand the US perspective um, of protecting Taiwan, but right now the Chinese Communist Party is going through a crisis of legitimacy. They had a social contract with their citizens and that contract was very simple. This is the uh, iron bowl, we will feed you, you will get economic growth and jobs, and in return, you will owe us unquestioning fealty. In fact, very much like the old imperial uh, rulers of China. Under Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping thought is now part of the constitution. Zero COVID policy was a disaster. The credit bubble of Chinese banks is bursting. The real estate market is tanking up to 60% of personal savings are locked in real estate. Uh, at this point, communism of the communist party is practically fiction. And so they will revert to nationalism. And that means that sentiment over Taiwan, sentiment over South China Sea, they just have, uh, come out with a 10-dash line, which thankfully is less than the 1947 Guomindang's 11-dash line. But nevertheless, the, the nationalism within China is, is the only thing giving legitimacy to Xi Jinping. And do you think that could lead to the Thucydides trap, as Professor Graham Allison talks, the clash between a ruling and rising power? Well, I mean, I think in that sense, it wouldn't be the Thucydides trap because by the indicators you described, China would be declining. So it would be, and, and I actually worry about. But uh, a declining China is more dangerous. Well, because, that's, what, that's yeah, what I was about to say. I mean, if you look historically. He, he has to whip up that xenophobic well, not only sand, that, sentiment. But not only that, but, but declining powers as we see in Russia today, or if you want to go back and look at the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the Ottoman Empire before World War I, I mean, they just have less and less to lose um, because they're less invested in the way things are, and so they're more risk tolerant. I mean, if you're increasing in power, then you've got more and more to lose with each passing year, and you can be emboldened by your power, but you can also be chastened by the fact that things are getting better for you. Mm -hmm. So if China thinks that things are getting worse because it's somehow in decline, then yes, that could absolutely be the trigger for a more uh, risk tolerant approach to things, including to Taiwan, that could ultimately lead to conflict. That said, I'm not convinced China's declining. I mean, it, part of this is a matter of interpretation. And, you know, in Washington, it seems to have flipped from everybody worried about China's rise for years to a few months ago, everybody started worrying about China's decline overnight and pointing to exactly <laughs> the same things you you have. Well, look at the stock of non-performing loans, and real estate, and youth unemployment's above 25%. Yeah, yeah they're stuff. all going so, to temples. So, <laughs> so, you know, and some of these things are not entirely new, um, but, 
but you know, this also depends on what you look at. And China's military might, which we care a lot about, is increasing in power. Their defense budget is not zero. Their growth rate is come down, but their economic growth rate is not zero, and their population is actually declining. No, and so their per capita income is year, rising. This year right? they might be in recession, though. Might be. Yeah. But so far they haven't been in negative territory. So my my point is just that. Yes, compared to the big economic growth rates of yesteryear, China has slowed down. Has it gone? Has it started contracting? No. Uh, has its military become weaker than it was in the past? Absolutely not. Has its foreign policy become more restrained? I see no evidence of that. So in the in the ways that, that, that we care most about, uh, I don't think that China is obviously declining. But you know, you've got to you've got to look out either way. But. They're less invested in the world with all this talk about industrial policy, CHIPS Act, promoting semiconductors here, with uh, talk about decoupling, talk about globalization, talk about reshoring, nearshoring, friendshoring. And that discourse is not only there in the US, it's there in the EU, it's there in India. So China certainly is not going to be as reliant on exports as before, which means that they will be less invested than before in their relationship with the rest of the world. Yeah, I have a different take, which is not that those things were the drivers. I think that at the strategic level and at the level of Xi Jinping, after the global financial crisis and other big international events, which Xi Jinping believed uh, were evidence of fundamental flaws in the West, uh, the Chinese leadership concluded that the West Day was essentially done, that China was essentially in the ascendance, that ultimately the world was going to have to get used to uh, a dominant Chinese role, certainly regionally and, and then globally, uh, and that you could expect the United States and its Western friends and allies to try to cling to the prerogatives they used to have, which were anachronistic and not a function of the way the world should be. And so it was going to be pretty tense as the US decline in China rose, but that was just the way it was gonna be. And uh, I think they still believe that. They may believe it, but uh, Xi Jinping hasn't shepherded the economy very well. And he is the son of uh, a disgraced Marxist, and he's almost swung the pendulum back to Marx. Yet, uh, sorry, back to Mao, I, I apologize, yeah. I said Marx. And Mao, of course, centralized the economy, centralized power, and gave China some good things, but also the Great Leap Forward and, cult and the Cultural Revolution. It was Deng Xiaoping who said it doesn't matter if a cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. In fact, he gets the credit for spectacular growth rates. Under Xi, China seems to have reverted back to Mao's centralization and the economy is not doing as it was. Now, there was no way it could have kept up the growth rates, but his policies haven't helped either. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. Now, I mean, he's clearly not going back to Mao in the sense that, I mean, people aren't melting down their farming implements to make, you know, steel in the backyard. No, not to um, that extent. But, but, but uh, and, and China may be ultimately caught in the middle income trap as a result of policies or whatever you want to attribute it to. Certainly, some of their policies have not helped. Um, but, you know, even very recently, the assumption was that you know a graph that showed Chinese economic growth would go up and to the right indefinitely at a pretty steep pace. 
Uh, you know, maybe, maybe maybe slow down, but you know, it was you know, people kept saying, well, you know, China's not yet the the world's biggest economy, but it will overtake the United States by X date, and those dates seem to kind of get closer and closer, and all of this. Now you don't hear that so much. Well, anymore. Glenn and I were always contrarians because never in history has any economy grown endlessly and uh, continuously. There there have always been slumps and then spurts. So we were contrarians because we thought that the economic laws of gravity would catch up. Well, and they might be, right? I mean, and, and so I think then the question is, are they, do they catch up in a way, if they are, are they catch up in a way that's sort of structural, that would require structural change such as that the government under Xi Jinping is either unwilling or simply unable to mm. make those changes? Or is this sort of natural flux fluctuations? We're not that long out of COVID. They opened up way later than everybody else. They've got this uh, real estate bubble, but we've had real estate bubbles. And the Japanese have had real, you know, those can burst and, and economies can move on without, you know, going backwards tremendously. I just don't know the answer to that question. Um, but what does seem interesting to me is that, you know, given the economic issues that China has, you could imagine Xi, Xi Jinping going in one of two ways. One, he could go in the direction of, of Mao and saying, well, forget the economy. This is about nationalism and the party, and we're going to be aggressive abroad and all this other kind of stuff along the lines of what you were describing before. You know, you, you, you become more risk tolerant, more let's rally around the flag of nationalism and the party and all this. Or he could go more in the direction of Deng Xiaoping and say, well, look, it's economy first. You know, it's one thing to be aggressive abroad when, you know, our economy was growing at 10 percent. But if we're at 2 percent, then, you know, we got to focus our our energies elsewhere. There's nothing I see that suggests the latter. Uh, maybe it's to come, but I doubt it. It seems like it's, uh, you know, it's not, uh, you know, that we need to actually focus on the economy and bide our time for some amount of time in a Deng Xiaoping sort of way, but rather, you know, you still have this kind of expansive view of what China should be doing in the world in a rather brusque way in which it should be doing it. And I think that in turn flows from this core conviction that the leadership has that this is just the way the world is going. That yes, there may be ups and downs here, maybe two steps forward and one step back, but ultimately there's going to be a dominant position for the world in China. And ultimately there's going to be a decline in the power of the United States and the West and change in kind of the international order to better reflect what they believe is the accurate distribution of power and the way international legitimacy should reside. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> On that note, Richard, it's been lovely to have you. Uh, have, a, have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for making time for us. We'll see you again um, on FO Podcasts, and we expect an article from you very soon. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All the best. Bye.